Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello and welcome to the Political Party Podcast. This episode features Channel 4 News legend Krishnan Guru Murthy. I was absolutely delighted uh, that he agreed to come over and uh, come on the show. And it's a fascinating conversation about holding politicians to account, how to conduct an interview, the pressure on modern broadcasters and on modern broadcast journalists, as well as a conversation about Britain's social values, the way things are changing. Um you know, it's really, there's something so strange about, uh, I suppose, all broadcast journalists in the sense, but particularly with Christian, is there's an element that, of course, he's a, a highly decorated and respected broadcast journalist, but of course, he's on telly. So there's a kind of showbiz element in a way that um, perhaps you don't get with politicians or advisors, where as well as being a uh, very uh, effective TV interviewer, uh, one of the best, He's also a TV star, so it's um, and he is very charismatic. Uh, but it's just such a great conversation about uh, all the things you'd expect us to talk about: impartiality, the challenges of holding people to account, getting access to people, uh, the 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 line between um, holding someone to account, not demonstrating your own opinion, or trying not to. There's just so much in it. Um, it was just completely absorbing. Um, and I can't thank you enough for coming in. I, I, it was a thrill. So I hope you enjoy listening to it. Thank you to everyone who came to see me at uh, the South Bank Centre last weekend. I'm at King's Place on Saturday night. There's only a couple of tickets left. Um, th- it may well have sold out by the time you hear this. But uh, you can get tickets to all my live shows at mattford.com slash live or just search Mattford King's Place on uh, on Google. That's on Saturday, the 12th of October. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else more. I've got to tell you, I think that's it. I'll leave you for now. Uh, with Christian Gould. Delighted that on today's show I'm joined by Krishnan and Guru Murthy. Krishnan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. I it's don't a... normally get asked to be, in, you know, to be interviewed. So. <laughs> really? Is that true? No. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, you do, you do some interviews, but I mean, certainly not anything very long and in depth, and it, it makes you a bit nervous. Yeah. Really? <laughs> I can't imagine you ever being nervous. Yeah, I mean, I think you get nervous about anything you're not familiar with. You know, if you're off your your beaten track, then. You know, I used to get really, really nervous about playing piano in school assembly. Yes. Because I used to have to play to the hymns. And that was, you know, sort of playing in front of an audience like that was not what I was used to doing. So I used to get terrified. So this is a bit like you know, playing in school assembly. Oddly, um, <laughs> I played the piano at school as well. And, and I don't think there is a terror like having to play the piano in yeah, front of an audience. Yeah, it's really, really horrible. And I, I quite often lost it and would just sort of stop <laughs> halfway through the hymns. And people would sort of carry on and then I would sort of join in whenever I could. Oh, man, <laughs> that's really taken me back to... What's really odd is I've got a, just an electric piano in the house now, but I can play fine when no one else is there. The moment even one person is watching, I, I feel my fingers sweat. Yeah. I start slipping on the keys. There is something particularly terrifying about having to play an instrument in front of people, I think. Yeah, if, you're not, if it's not your thing. <laughs> and also, similar to this, oddly, 
whenever I'm interviewed, I find it weirder. And I just think, well, I do interviews all the time, but being interviewed is completely different. Yeah, I mean, particularly if you're in my shoes and that um, I have to be very careful about what I say because I'm a news presenter and so yeah. I have to not give away too much about what I think about anything. <laughs> and so if you're being interviewed and the people keep wanting to ask you what you think, you have to say, right, what can I say that is OK? So you're constantly thinking uh, as you're talking rather than just having a chat. Well, don't worry, I'm not going to... I, I, I totally appreciate you have to be impartial. So we'll concentrate more on your experience of, I suppose, interviewing others rather than your own views yourself. But, I mean, it must be hard when you are interviewing people that you either agree or disagree with to find the words to hold them account that that aren't you saying i disagree well i think i'm very lucky to work on channel 4 news where the style of the program and the style of the interviewing is to put a proposition so you can say things that sound like it's what you think but yeah. it's not you know you're just putting an argument and the trick i think is to always try and surprise people about where you're coming from. Yes. Um, and, and, and unfortunately, I think because of the way Brexit and, you know, politics has become so polarised and so uh, sort of nitpicky, people often think you're saying what you think. <laughs> yeah. And then you have to, and then they sort of will attack you on Twitter for saying, but you said, you know, whatever. And you go, but yeah, but I wasn't saying what I think. I was just putting an argument to them yeah. for them to respond to. So actually, I mean, I think, you know, the, the, the way our programme is structured, it's relatively easy. And people, most people get that if I say, but that's, that, you know, but, but, but that's outrageous. You've got, you're not saying... That's me saying it's outrageous. Yes. It's, you know, the public or the viewer or some viewers. You know. I mean, it must be so hard because you're still a human being. You know, you're, you're highly professional. You're highly experienced. You're one of the best in the business. But still, if someone sat opposite you is being cantankerous. I think of the, uh, in recent years, the Jeremy Corbyn interview in 2015. Yeah. Where he really takes against you. And I, part, of, part of that I wondered was, actually, he seems to react, in my opinion against the people that he thinks should be fairer on him. So he probably always has thought, well, The Guardian are friends of mine, Channel 4 News are friends of mine, the BBC is fairly fair. But then the the, the experience of leadership and of standing for the leadership, I think in that Vice documentary, he really gets annoyed with The Guardian, with Jonathan Friedland in particular. And I wonder if he got particularly worked up in that interview because part of it was thinking, you're meant to be on my side, mate. I wonder if that was part of his thoughts. Maybe. I mean, I, I think... In that particular case, um, you know, it may also have been a tactic on his part, you know, that he came prepared to to attack the questioner. Yes. Um, if things got difficult. Um, it's hard to say, you know, sort of exactly what was going through his head. Um, but it, it, what I found strange about that interview was where the way the sort of the anger turned on and off very, very quickly. You know, because it was a very long interview, you know, yeah. re relatively for a Channel 4 News interview. And so as soon as we got off that particular thing, um, he wasn't angry anymore and we sort of carried on. So I don't know whether that was a sort of a tactic in the interview to sort of deal with that particular topic or not. I it mean, may it's, have been. it's such a strange, you know, the more you talk about it, even just at the start of this interview, the, 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 the range of people you have to interview and the different tactics they will use, not just even within an interview, within a question. Yeah, you're kind of having to. It's like being a boxer having to fight people of all shapes and sizes. Yeah, and and you know you you you, you have to sort of prepare interviews a bit like a a fight. I mean, sort of I I sort of game most of those interviews in my head uh, during the course of the day or beforehand. Sort of try and if I if I know. I mean, sometimes you literally get a couple of minutes notice. But if you know you're going to do an interview with somebody like that, then you're thinking it through. You're going, well, if I say that, he's going to say that. 
and then I will say that or that, you know, or, or you know, if he says the other, then this is what I'll do. So, yeah, you, you do sort of, um, you, you do think it through in your head and try and work out your tactics as well. And do you, I mean, I suppose it's different for Adam Bolton, because one of the points he made when I had him on was that if you're in 24-hour news, and of course you did News 24, but he's out there on the green all day, there's just more time for him to make mistakes. And obviously when he lost his rag with Alistair Campbell, <laughs> I mean, do you ever have moments like that where you think, I've got to stay calm because I feel like saying something here? Um, I, well, no, I mean, I, the, the, the closest I've come to it, I, I did this interview with Sebastian Gorka where... Where he, he he you know he was very much in that sort of attack the interviewer mold and just attack the BBC and attack Channel Four and attack you know whoever he's interviewing and he, I can't remember what it was but he said something and I, I thought this has become now so stupid that my response and I think it was a live interview as well was is that the best you've got <laughs> and, <laughs> and I came off air and my editor looked at me as if like what what was that it is like is that the best you've got it's like. <laughs> is that what our interviews have become? It was like you were squaring up to him in a sort of a playground, you know. So very occasionally. But no, I mean, you know, most of the time you're there sort of, you go into an interview with, with two or three things in your head that you think, this is what I've got to get out of this interview. Yes. This is what I want to either expose because I know they're not going to answer the question or this is what I'm trying to find out. Or, you know, this is the, the thing that, you know, I know they know and we've got to try and, you know, get somewhere near that. And so you're you're going in with a point. And... You know, very occasionally it'll get sort of get thrown off course by somebody losing their temper or saying something totally unexpected. Um, and then you just kind of let it unfold and see what happens. I mean, when Jeremy Corbyn lost his temper, you know, you're kind of thinking, OK, well, this is interesting. You know, yeah. I mean, <laughs> this is going to be interesting TV, you know, apart from anything else. And he's showing something of himself here that he doesn't normally show. And, you know, it was very noticeable that after that, for a long time, he... You know, he didn't lose his temper yeah. in the same way. And I think, you know, they will have learned from that as well. Um, mentioning the Trump supporter there, Gorka, I, I do wonder whether... Um, are the rules changing now in terms of how you should hold someone to account? You know, there's always been a particular way that, particularly in British broadcasting journalism, there's obviously different outlets have their different styles, but there's a way that interviewers behave. Yeah. Do you think when you're dealing with people that are more populist and when you're dealing with people that will make claims about you and claims about the media and a rigged system and everything you know when you hear those buzz phrases is it your job to expose that or do you still have to interview them in the way that you would interview anyone else no i think you have to absolutely point it out you have to try and stop every line uh getting past you yeah um and say and point them out as, as you go and so if people say things that aren't true you say that's not true um so you know, I interviewed John Redwood a while ago, and, yes. and, and there was a, there was a clip that sort of went viral because he was he was saying something about public opinion which at that time just wasn't true, wasn't wasn't borne out by the polls, and so I felt you know you've got to say when that's not true. You can't just let those things slide anymore because it becomes part of the narrative. It gets repeated. You know, you suddenly find yourself having conversations with people in the pub where they're sort of repeating the stuff that yes. hasn't been corrected. So it's absolutely our job to make sure that. The interviews are based on fact, and um, you know. And if people say things that are just lies or untrue, then then you say that. You say that's not true. You know. You know, lying is the, always the difficult, you know, word to, to use because that's mm. about motive. So you know, you've got to really know that somebody's lying before you say lie. But 
I think saying something is untrue is absolutely part of our routine job now. And people say things that are untrue all the time. <laughs> so you've got to point them out. And I think similarly also with the tactics, you know, we're sort of when people either aren't answering the question or are attacking you or are distracting, I think it's a good thing to say, we know what you're doing. Yes. That's, you know. And that's so satisfying to watch because it leaves them with nowhere to go. I mean, it is, it is and it isn't. I mean, it can be frustrating, I think, because you... You know, you're still not getting anywhere no. sometimes. You know, by just pointing out, look, I know, I know you're you're lying, you're deflecting, you're coming out with your talking points. Yeah. Um, you, you can still, still sometimes get to the end of that interview and go, not really sure what the point of that was, you know, um, and, or what it achieved. And so I think we've also got to think very carefully about putting people on air just for the sake of... Yes. Filling time. So sometimes, you know, you, you particularly at the moment, I think, with with, you know, I mean, we at a point of recording. We're in the you know last few days of the Brexit negotiations. And so very, very few people actually know what's going on. Mm. You know, the country's being run by a couple of people. And I noticed this at Conservative Party conference. You know, we were talking to cabinet ministers who clearly had no idea what was going on. They weren't being consulted. They weren't part of the conversation. And so you think, well, I'm, is there any point putting this man on air? if he doesn't know what's going on, and asking him what's going on, and him saying, well, I don't really know. That's such a good point. And, and obviously the BBC is, the, uh, is, the, is kind of the focus of so much of these discussions about what is balance. And it seems to fall always at the BBC. I'm sure other news outlets as well uh, struggle with that. But, you know, the, the, the cliched charge that you see, particularly on social media, is that someone would say, um, you know, for balance, we're going to have uh, someone who's been a victim of racism and then a racist. You know? <laughs> and, and that's not that's yes. not that's not balance. So is there a discussion in the industry about what balance is? Yes. I, and I think it's it's a constantly evolving thing because, you know, the topics around which we coalesce and agree that are now sort of these are accepted things change you know so mm. 10 years ago you would do a debate about climate science about whether it's real or not yeah um you wouldn't do that now um but but the sort of the hangover of that is still you know there are still topics i mean you know the sort of the the, the bbc row over nagamonchetti and, yes. and racism you know that the, there are still people who will want to have a discussion about whether it's right to say racism is a bad thing you know, um, and you know the, the BBC statement. You know, w- wouldn't say racism was bad. It just said racism is racism. It was like Brexit means Brexit. You know, sort of it was a completely pointless, meaningless statement that they put out. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think w- we are all having these conversations about um, when, when you need to have a balancing voice, when you don't need to have a balancing voice. You know, what is sort of. Um, a universally accepted truth and what is a debatable opinion or, or, or you know, or perhaps something that isn't quite, pro- you know, it's almost proven, but isn't quite proven. So I think, you, you, you know, and you've got to be careful because sometimes, and I think this may have been the problem with Brexit as well, you know, in, in the run up to the referendum, you assume that a lot of people think something, mm. um, but actually they they don't necessarily and and even if things are facts they don't necessarily mean that that all equates to the same opinion so you know you you can't assume that because there's a consensus around an economic impact of a particular you know outcome that everybody affected by that 
badly will be against it. You know, some people will be in favour of it anyway. Yeah. And I think we're, we're all trying to work out exactly what, what the right thing is to do in that situation and what kind of debates to have. Oh, sorry, that's a very rambling answer. No, it's I, a great answer. <laughs> it's, it's brilliant. It, it also sort of leads us, in terms of the changes that we've seen, not just people voting against their own economic self-interest, and knowingly so, but also the challenges that traditional news media faces from, from new media, from not just social media, but, I mean, particularly... I suppose Guido is more of a kind of, and we've had Paul Staines on here, um, is more of a kind of uh, Westminster gossip site. But things like Navarra Media, Squawk Box, you know, mm. this kind of, particularly on the left, really, these new media outlets that are trying to, well, they're, they're clearly ideologically driven. But do they do they represent a threat to things like Channel Four News in any way? Do you think? I don't think they do, to be honest. I mean, I, I think, you know, to some, you've got to ask why these channels are growing on the left and the right and to what extent that is just because people like being in an echo chamber and they like opinionated media and to what extent it is that people genuinely feel that they've lost trust in the big media brands and I think you know you can get into a bit of a nervous breakdown about it and say well you know we we, you know uh it must be our fault um (laughs) But actually, you know, I think we just live in a world in which the media pl- proliferates. People like lots of different things. Um, and, you know, just as, uh, you know, the Internet didn't kill TV, um, I don't think new media brands that are opinionated and definitely take a position necessarily kill brands who are regulated and trying to be impartial. Um, but I think, you know, th- they have changed the game. You know, they have changed the the environment in which you swim, particularly in social media. Um, and so you've got to be able to respond to that and not, not just ignore it. I think you've also got to... You know, I think it is true that sometimes, and some people who have gone to these brands, whether it's on the left or the right, and have sort of slightly abandoned Channel 4, ITV, Sky and BBC, um, you know, that may, maybe, you know, maybe there is an element of us doing things wrong, that we've got to we've got to reach out to those people. That we can't just say it's okay to lose people's trust. Yes, you know, and that we've got to do a little bit more to try and win them back and persuade them that that we are genuinely trying to strive for fairness and impartiality, and you know, uh, and convince them of that. And it's quite often it's that case of sort of uh, you know if, if you if somebody uh, sends you a sort of a, a rude complaint and you engage with them. Yeah. Uh, rather than just ignoring it, then they'll go, oh, actually, you know, I, I didn't really mean it. Actually, I quite like you. you know, and, um, and I do think Channel 4 News tries hard. And, and, and then they suddenly sort of back down. And, and, you, and it's, it's that sort of, sometimes a lot, it's just sort of a shout of anger. And I think we do need to reach out to those people as well. So, um, again, so, so not a threat, but it has changed the, the landscape a bit. And you've been in the landscape for so long. <laughs> and you're still young. But, I mean, it, it's remarkable how quickly you became a fixture on TV. And, and at the age, you were presenting on Channel 4, or well, open to question, when you were still at university. Yeah, well, actually, before university, when I was 18, my in God. my year off, uh, before <laughs> university, uh, when I started, off. yeah. Um, I mean, I, I'd been on TV as a sort of as a guest in an audience when I was a kid from about the age of 15, because I did a lot of debating. And one of the debating competitions I did was used as a recruiting ground to recruit the audience. And so... I had been on this show, Open yeah. to Question, which used to invite groups of teenagers to question politicians and public figures. And, and I, 
I wrote to them and asked them for some work experience after I was leaving school and about to go off and be a doctor. And um, they said, yeah, fine. And after two weeks of work experience, they they actually said, well, actually, we'd like to screen test you to take over the show, uh, which they did, and then offered me a job. And it was a week before my A-level results. And so, <laughs> That's incredible. I, you know, I, watched, <laughs> um, I watched a few of them back on YouTube. The Jimmy Savile one is... Uh, Incredible television, yeah. not just because of how composed you are. I mean, you're better even at 18 than so many TV presenters after years <laughs> in the game are. Well, that was my first show. That it's was my first program. It's remarkable how just natural you are at it. Well, With an amazing flat top hair, yeah. kind of kid and play um, <laughs> flat top Well, I think I also had that sort of absolute confidence of a kid who's sort of like, yeah, yeah I could do this. There's, you know, I've seen this done, I know how to do it. But um, it's not a nasty arrogance. You're not kind of, you're not pushy and rude. You're, 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 you're relaxed and you're sweet with him but it's you're just so good at it well he was very angry um, um <laughs> afterwards i mean it was a, it was a really remarkable program we actually ran a big clip of it on channel 4 news when the scandal broke yeah because you know we had these kids who open to question was a sort of was a str- funny program really to think of it was a sort of a bear pit of these aggressive teenagers yeah um who were asking people awkward questions. And so they asked him a lot of sort of very direct questions about his tabloid claims about, you know, sleeping with hundreds of girls and his amazing sex life and parties and all the rest of it. And um, and he he kind of revealed himself really quickly as this creepy bloke who who was obviously up to lots of pretty questionable stuff. And and, and it, it became very uncomfortable. And he was really surprised because he thought he was coming in to be Jimmy Savile, the superstar. Yeah. Um, and he complained afterwards, and you know, complained. You know, did the, the son did a story with him about how dreadful we were and that kind of thing. So, uh, but it was very revealing, and, and that show sort of did that quite often. Actually, it sort of it because it, it's people were so surprised uh, that these sixteen-year-olds were not. Or you know, dumbstruck with awe, you know. Yes, uh, and would just ask really awkward questions. And what's amazing about it, actually, w- watching that back on YouTube is, is firstly how atrocious he comes across. Um, but there's a real mix of accents in that studio audience. There's a lot of Scottish. There's the kind of accents you would expect of young people who are into politics. There's a couple of Scousers. And it's a kind of group interrogation where they don't let him off the hook. So there's a lot of questions about his Catholicism contrasting with the way that he was running his life. And these kids are incredible. And they're from all different backgrounds, all parts of the UK, and none of them are phased by him at all. Yeah, well, I mean, it it was sort of deliberate. It was made in Scotland, and and schools would generally send a few kids, and you'd make up an audience of 70 or 80 kids with a few from schools from all around the country. And you know, the BBC would train them up and put them up for a night and then you would do a recording and, and then they would all go home. And that's how I got involved. I was one of those kids. So you were when you first started getting into debating and things and, and you, you went on to study PP at Oxford, was there part of you that might have wanted to be a politician? Oh, yeah. I mean, as a kid, I was very interested in politics. I wasn't a member of a political party or anything like that, but... Um, yeah, I, w- I was very political and did have this sort of vague dream of that would be quite a cool thing to get involved yeah. in. But I think, to be honest, I, I just didn't think it was possible. You know, um, being in television didn't seem possible. So when that happened, that was very, very surprising. And I didn't even have the confidence as a teenager to to want to go and do law. You know, I mean, my dad's a doctor and I was kind of 
going to do medicine because couldn't really think of anything else to do and a lot of Indian kids get told to go and be a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant, whatever it is. And, and so I was sort of on that trajectory to be a, a medic and do science A-levels. What I really wanted to do, I think, was be a barrister and um, or you know, and, and sort of get involved in politics and acting. And I was in the yeah. National Youth Theatre and that kind of stuff. That, that was all the stuff that kind of turned me on. But I thought I'd never be able to do it and that... Um, the law was probably quite racist and, you know, I didn't see any big famous advocates who looked like yeah. me. And I thought that's just not part of my world. So I think I, th- I thought the same about politics as well. But were you were you a kind of firebrand without giving away uh, where you were left or right? Brand, I mean, no, not really. I mean, you know, I, I went to a private school um, in Blackburn, Lancashire and called Queen Elizabeth. And it was it was a sort of it used to take in you know a quite quite actually quite a diverse mix of kids you know people weren't rich they were sort of the sons of business people and professionals and shopkeepers and you know just people who wanted you know to send their kids to a good school and a lot of kids were also on assisted places yes um paid for by the government and so actually it it wasn't a sort of a posh school yeah. it was it was quite a diverse school um but it was it was the 80s and most of the kids came from families who were conservative voters, and our local MP was Jack Straw, um, you know, the, the Labour MP. And so, I mean, I, I used to get involved in a lot of, you know, debating and political arguments with friends. And my sort of my first political memories were, I suppose, around sort of 1979 and the yeah, beginning of Thatcher yeah. and um, vague, vague memories of the winter of discontent and, and that kind of thing. So... I remember, you know, I remember sort of having big debates about the SDP yeah. in art, <laughs> you know, which, which, which is sort of quite an odd thing. But yeah, I mean, that's when my sort of political consciousness kicked in. Um, but no, I mean, I think because I became, because I went into TV so early at 18, that cut off any political Activism. ambition. Yeah, yeah. And so when I went to university, I was already working in TV and I worked all the way through university in TV. And so the idea of getting involved in student politics or joining a political party was just never really an option because I thought TV's great. This is what I want to do. And I suppose in a way that that desire to be a, a barrister, you have kind of satisfied because you do cross-examine people yeah, to and get to extent. the truth. Yeah. So that itch that would have driven you there, it's kind of, you, you've managed to satisfy that in a way. Yeah, to, to some extent. And I suppose that's why I enjoy the longer interviews and, and sort of I'm always pushing yeah. to do longer interviews and why, I, you know, why I've enjoyed doing, I mean, you know, my podcast, which is sort of a, just a long conversation, not a prosecutorial interview. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I do enjoy that. And some people don't like it, I think, at the moment, you know, um, but I do think it's our job to do that with the people in power. Yes, I totally agree. Um, have people in power ever tried to recruit you to be like a head of comms or anything like that? Um, not really, no. I mean, because I don't, I don't, I don't make friends with politicians. I don't. I'm not somebody who takes politicians for lunch or mm. hangs out with them. I find it too difficult. I've sort of been friendly with a couple of politicians, and I find it it, it just makes life very tricky and. I don't like the idea that people think that, you know, you're you're part of their club mm. or one of them or going to do them a favour or somebody who they can sort of drop a... You know, cause, because I've never, I've never done that sort of lobby job. I've never been a political correspondent. Yes. And so I've never been interested in getting stories out of people. I, 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 I talk to politicians and, um, 
you know, will chat to them and try and sort of get their view quietly without necessarily then going and broadcasting it, just so that I've got that background knowledge yeah. of what's going on in people's heads. But uh, I've, I've never wanted to sort of... Um, be mates with them and so I, so and that's the only way I think you really get offered those sorts of jobs if people really think you're on their side in terms of holding them to account in different ways you've presented a number of uh, landmark shows really including this summer's uh, Britain's Next Prime Minister where you had to be ringmaster to f- I think five of the uh, then Tory leadership candidates one of the things that really struck me about all the TV debates uh, around that time is they were all defined by not being Boris Johnson. And it was so hard for all of those shows. And for the, I was thinking more from the candidates' point of view, so hard for them to not be just, I'm not Boris. I mean, as a presenter, as a, as a host of those debates, how do you kind of deal with problems like that? I think in that particular example, in a way, it was... It was not having... Boris Johnson there was good for them because it gave them the space. If Boris Johnson had been there, he would have sucked all the oxygen out of the room. Yes. And the debate would have revolved all around what he was saying. As it was, actually, it it gave them a bit of space to to develop their own arguments. And, you know, for that sort of couple of days around that debate and afterwards, you know, Rory Stewart had flourished, you know, done really well on that debate. Um, you know, he then kind of blew it on the BBC debate a few days later. But it kind of changed the game. So, yes, it would have been great to have had Boris Johnson there. Um, and it was it was a real shame and, you know, really weird, I think, that he wasn't. But um, it also it also had its strengths, I think, in that in that particular case. Do you, do you have discussions? In the, I mean, I'm sure you go through all these different scenarios. But do you think, right? We're going to we're going to be very clear on what the rules are. We don't want them talking over each other. Or is there part of you that thinks let them have a bit of a dust up and then almost like a boxing referee, let them go at each other a bit, but then intervene? And do you have a sense of this has gone on too long, or they haven't had a, enough of a go at yeah, each other? Yeah, I, I mean, I like as few rules as possible in those sorts of scenarios. I mean, it's, it's the parties and the campaigns who like rules. They're the ones mm. who want to go, right, so what are the rules? You know, how long are we going to get for opening statements? How long are we going to get for each answer? You know, are you going to have a stopwatch on each person so that we know that everybody gets equal time? All that kind of stuff. I think... You know, it's much better if you can have things as free-flowing as possible so that people can interrupt each other and can cross-examine each other. And, and then I can sort of pop in when things need to be yes. levelled a bit. And, and I see my job there as making sure things are fair, making sure people are broadly getting the right, you know, the same amount of time um, and that the tough questions are being asked of everybody, you know, so that it's not ganging up and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I mean, I, I like to keep them as free of rules as possible but actually it's it's the campaigns and the parties who like to impose a structure because they want to know exactly what they're doing and is it harder or or easier than than doing a one-to-one interview because in a one-to-one interview you're having a conversation and things that you you know your your subject is saying are provoking new questions and you're still trying to think well i need to ask them about i can't forget about that thing but they've just said something really interesting i'm going to follow that when there's four or five of them is it quite hard to keep track of what people are actually saying um, I mean, I suppose it. I suppose it could be. I mean, I don't find it particularly hard. Um, what I find hard about the debate structure is that you have to kind of butt out. Mm. So, so when one of them says something that you know is rubbish, 
or that you know you you've got you've got the three follow-ups to that in your head yeah. and the others don't do it it's quite frustrating because you kind of think well come on you could destroy him there but it's but you know it's not my job in that situation yes. to do that um, and so you have to just bite your lip and say, well, would you like to come back on that? You know, do you, is there anything about that answer you can think that isn't quite right? You know, um, so uh, no. OK, fine. Let's move on then. And uh, so that that's what's tricky about the debates. Um, but I mean, I, I enjoy both things because, I mean, they're, they're, they are the debates feel like big occasions and big mm-hmm. events and they feel like, you know, there's a moment there and, um, and that this is part of the process. And that's why I really hope we get proper election debates. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Do you think they're a good thing? Yeah, I do. Um, I mean, I, th- I think they can, um, they can have an adverse effect on the campaign in a way if all the attention goes into the debates yeah. and they become the defining media moments of the debates. And if they, if it means that, the politicians are then less available to the general public and to do proper interviews. Because um, I think in a way, debates are easier than interviews for, for politicians for that reason, you know, that you, you don't have to endure sustained questioning for a long, long period of time. So if you're reasonably good on your feet, you know, you can, you can handle a debate quite well. Um, but no, I think they are a good thing because I think that, you know, a lot of people just start, you know, don't engage with the day-to-day detail of the news don't you know don't want to keep across everything that political geeks do and so having some big mass you know audience events is a good way of engaging the public and it's an important part of accountability i suppose that that prospective prime ministers should face each other and an an, an independent questioner and be seen to face them for a sustained period of time rather than being able to pick and choose i mean do you think they should be mandatory I, I do think there's an argument for having a debates commission in Britain the way we have in America and, and you know, that it just being a requirement that if you want to be prime minister, then you've got to do these things and you've got to do them in public. And, you know, you, that you can then draw up a series of rules um, and say, this is the way it works. Everybody's got to do it. And I think there is an argument for that so that we don't go through this. Every time, you know, will they, won't they, negotiations of going in to see the parties and saying, well, we'd really like to do them and would that be okay and how do you feel about it? And them saying, well, this is what we want to do. And then going to another party and then saying, oh, well, this is what we want to do. And they, you know, essentially the parties try and try and devise the TV formats is what, is what happens at yes. the moment. And I think actually what should happen is a bunch of independent people should say, this is the way it should work. Everybody just get on with it. Yeah. If you want to run the country, this is what you've got to do. Totally agree. Um, and I'm sure many of the listeners will as well. Um, when you're interviewing politicians, I mean, some of the some of the answers, or more to the point, some of the questions that provoke the answers are personal questions. Laura Koonsberg asking Theresa May, "What's the naughtiest thing you've ever done?" Um, I think Jeremy Paxman sent her, "Ed Miliband, are you tough enough?" You know, the, the, yeah. those kind of those kind of left field questions. When you're doing those sort of interviews, do you do you have a couple of those up your sleeve? Do you think I might just ask him if, if he's enjoying the job or not, or whether it's affecting his family? Um, I I think personally I I don't do that very much. Um, partly because access to politicians now is is much more limited, and if I'm only going to get eight minutes with the prime minister once every six months or once every year, then I don't really care about the per- you know the personal <laughs> stuff is like is the stuff it's often asked you know for fun or you know oh, we'll get an interesting answer there that'll get the headline that'll get the tabloid pickup yes. or whatever it is. 
to be honest, right at the moment, politics is a serious business. We don't have time to waste on what's your favourite colour um, or what's your favourite biscuit. Um, interesting, maybe, you know. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I mean, I, I do that in, in different ways. You know, if, if politicians will cut, you know, want to do a long interview, want to do a long conversation, if they want to come on the podcast, yeah. whatever it might be, then I'm really, really interested in their lives and their stories and what motivates them and all that kind of stuff. But I think this is the real problem. I think, and I, I, I really think that the, the, the sort of the spin doctors or the directors of communications don't understand that part of the reason you get these very aggressive interview exchanges sometimes is because they deprive an organisation of access. And so if you do get the interview, you go, right, well, we've got to ask him about this and that. And do you remember that thing that happened three months ago? We never got a chance to ask him about yes. that. Um, and so... It all gets crammed in, and it's like, this is really, really important. If they gave much more regular access in a much more relaxed way and said, yeah, we're, you know, we've got nothing to hide, we'll come yeah. and answer your questions regularly, then everything could just be a little bit dialed down and more mature. And you would have time to know a little bit more about them as people, but you'd also have time to hold them properly to account on policy. And so I, I think the... It's entirely their own fault sometimes, <laughs> you know, that, that they, you know, they sometimes provoke this sort of slight frenzy because they deprive the media of proper access. And, you know, to be honest, I, I think most politicians I know can handle it. Yes. You know, I don't know why they don't. You know, it, it's very rare that politicians really make a mess of things in an interview. And... You know, I, I think, and if you and if you do make a mess, if you can't handle it, then maybe you shouldn't be in politics. Yeah, and also, <laughs> you're going to make mistakes, and you know, in any line of work, and particularly newer politicians who are less battle hardened are going to occasionally trip up. And I think, on the whole, although social media means that perhaps those things echo around a bit longer than they would have done. But on the whole, people can say, oh, "I just had a bit of a nightmare, I had a yeah. brain fade, or whatever it was." Uh, Natalie Bennett said. I mean. Do you ever find when you're interviewing someone that you can tell they're nervous? Yes. And does that affect the way you treat them? Uh, it depends. I mean, yes, if, if it depends whether it's a sort of an accountability interview mm. in which you're trying to hold somebody to account and you're giving them quite a tough time or whether it's a different kind of interview. You know, it's somebody who's just telling you things and is just nervous or, um, you know, a member of the public who's talking to you about their experience or something. So, yeah, I mean, if people are nervous, then you try and... If you want them to open up and talk to you, then, of course, you have to try and put them at ease. Mm -hmm. With politicians, if people are nervous, um, well, it can be... I suppose it can be an advantage, you know, so you're you're not necessarily going to try and put them at ease. <laughs> do, you, do you ever have ones where... When you've had particularly combative interviews and then the show ends and you're still sat there, do people ever say, fuck it, what was that about? Very occasionally, but no. I mean, not really. On the whole, people just kind of leave um, and in a bit of a huff. And I actually remember um, Roger Ailes. I, I once spent a morning with Roger Ailes, the creator of Fox News um, in, wow. in New York. Um, and I basically I went to America for a week to go and hang out with different American TV stations and just look at what they did and how they did it and what their approach was. And I, I'd emailed various people. And Dawn Airy, who ran... Um, five in this country um i bumped into her at a thing because she she and i are both involved in the national youth theater and she said oh i know roger ailes i'll, I'll email him and say you know will he will he see you and he did and he gave me a whole morning and he said um to me i've seen your interviews and um 
you do this thing whereby you build up to the really tough questions as you go along and you leave your interviewees absolutely furious. So when they when they get to the end of their interview, they really hate your guts and they, you know, they, they are going to walk off. Um, whereas I tell all my presenters to ask the tough question at the beginning and then ask, make sure that you finish the interview on something that you know they want to say. You know, to do the sort of, and is there anything else you'd yeah. like to, to say, Minister, kind of question at the end. And that way they always leave happy because they feel that they've, they've said what they wanted to say. And there is, there is something in that. I think, you know, I mean, I, I don't think we, we should be in the business of just saying, um, what would you like to yeah. say, Minister? But um, I, I did think he sort of had, he had a point that uh, if you're going to, uh, if you're going to rough people up, then uh, it's important to also make them feel, make sure they feel that they've had their opportunity to say what they think and that they shouldn't leave feeling that they didn't have time or they didn't, you know, they didn't get their point across. Isn't there a danger with that, though, that if you ask the most difficult question first, they start in a bad mood and, and they, they give the most defensive answer possible because that's the one they're expecting and that's the one they've been practising all the best lines on, whereas actually if you walk them around the houses a bit, you, you can you can put them at ease Sometimes, and then they give you a different answer. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's true. But, I, I mean, I think, to be honest, you know, we're... we're the, the political interview has been through so many sort of different phases over the last few years of people being media trained, um, you know, the sort of the three minutes interview on the news, which used to be the sort of the standard duration when I first came into Channel 4 News, is now pretty mu- pretty pointless. You know, you can't get anywhere in three minutes. No. So, so we don't do them anymore. We do, we do much longer interviews now. Um, and so, you know, they'll be twice as long as that you know, routinely. And so, but that's just at the moment, you know, I'm sure they will adjust to that as well um, to say, okay, you know, because they used to sort of media train them to the three minute interview so that they could sort of dodge two or three questions, knowing that you would then have to move on or you'd run out of time. If they now know that you're not going to do that, you're just going to keep at them five or six times, maybe 10 times if if necessary, then they're going to have to have a different you know, tactic uh, to deal with it. So, it's a constant sort of game of, of of you changing your style and them adapting to it and then, you know, that getting stale and you having to sort of think about a new way of doing it. Um, so I don't think there are any absolute rules to these things. And, it, and it's probably cyclical, you know. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
just in terms of politics, not in the party political sense, but the, the politics, the social values of the country, um, you hosted a show, uh, the event, How Racist Are You? Yes. Many years ago. Um, did that surprise you in terms of finding out how racist Britain was or indeed wasn't? Um, no, it didn't surprise me. Because if you're... If you've got brown skin and you live in Britain, then you know how racist Britain is. Um, unless you live in a total bubble. Um, that programme was based on the blue eyes, brown eyes experiment yeah. of, of, of putting people in different tribes and seeing how they treat people differently, uh, run by uh, Jane Elliott, this American psychologist. Um, and so I think it was a really interesting experiment to do it again decades after it had originally been done. And it was interesting the way people did reveal their prejudices in the course of that discussion. Um, but no, I mean, I've, I'm, I'm not in any doubt about the extent of prejudice. And I don't, you know, I don't think it's really changed that much since I was a kid, to be perfectly honest. I don't think it's gone down dramatically since I was a kid, and I think we've, we've gone through periods of it being more or less acceptable. And I think what's happened actually during the course of my lifetime is prejudice was quite acceptable when I was a little kid, then it became a lot less acceptable during the course of the 90s and the 2000s, but it was still there. Mm. It just wasn't revealed, and now it's more acceptable to reveal it. And do you think... In a way, is revealing it, can you make a case for at least then you know who's racist and who isn't? Or is it better to keep these things? Obviously, whilst simultaneously trying to educate people, um, are, th are some things best left unsaid? Oh, definitely. No, I mean, I think there's great dangers in just saying, well, at least we all know where we stand. Mm. Because it can be weaponized and used, you know, to galvanise movements and people and social media and um, so I, th I think it's I think there are lots of dangers of letting casual racism slide and you know it's very interesting what what's happening on social it's, it's happening on social media I suppose more than anywhere else at the moment but you'll get a moment where somebody will say something that is clearly over the line mm. and unacceptable and and it's kind of like dipping their toes in the water. So if you look at the Leave.eu tweet about Angela Merkel oh my recently, God. now they, they put that out. It was widely condemned. A lot of the media didn't really cover it. I mean, we didn't show it on Channel mm. 4 News. Um, we talked about it and we asked people about their reaction to it. But we, we thought, well, we've got to think carefully about amplifying the imagery. Um, but then the next day they withdrew it, deleted it, apologised. Um, so what was going on there? I don't know. You know, some people have said, well, that's clearly trying to work out where the line is. What's the line of acceptability? What can we get away with? Um, and I, I don't know whether that's true or not. It may have just been a mistake, um, which they then apologised for and withdrawn. But, you know, I, th I think that's just an example. There's lots of this stuff happening where people are saying, what can we get away with here? What's now acceptable? And I think if you don't, you know, point it out and say, no, that, that is racism um, or that's prejudice or whatever it might be, 
then you normalise it. And then we're suddenly in the mad world of everything being fine. And in terms of, and not just racism, but any form of prejudice, and, and particularly with people who are deliberately provocative, what is the best way to hold them to account? Because there is that line between, as you say, amplifying the message. You either, But you have to discuss it in order to defeat it in a way. Where Where is the line? Do you say, uh, do you mention the meme and not quote it? Because then the audience goes, well, I'm not sure what these people are talking yes, about. Yes, I think it's really difficult. And I don't know what the answer is, to be honest. And I, th- I think it's sort of, it's each one has to be judged on its merits because some of them are going to be so awful that you you definitely don't want to be showing them on television. Mm. Some of them are going to be describable. Um, But in a way, I mean, you know, a lot of the most damaging or the most dangerous imagery or, or language is... Is the more acceptable stuff because yeah. that's the one that's creeping. That's the that's the stuff that that moves the line of what is acceptable. So I, I don't know what the answer is to be perfectly honest. And and I think we you know we don't you know there's not an obvious policy. I mean you know there are policies on what is acceptable language to use. What's what's uh, you know what is racism and how you're supposed to deal with it. But for example, on that leave.eu example i was interviewing a german and sort of saying you know well how do you feel about being called with apologies for the language a crowd yeah um now what if that had been a black person would i have said would i have used the n-word um probably not i mean personally my my own view is i mean i don't even like saying the n-word i I would say it i mean no what i mean is i i don't like sanitizing that the language by calling it the M word. I won't say it because I, uh, yeah. on here because I know that gets you into problems. But I I would like to use the words that people use. Yes. Um, because I I think saying the N word itself sanitizes. Yes. Um, but I know that's not what everybody thinks, and it's not you know, uh, and, and I can't just go off and make policy. <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> um, so I don't know. I, there's no easy answer to your question. I, I, th- I think we've all got to kind of think about it and just try and be responsible, and uh, and point point out what's going on, challenge it where you can challenge it. But if, for example, you don't have the person who said it to hold to account, mm. then you know what are you achieving? You, you know, are, are you just amplifying their message? Yes, and the person you're interviewing can say, well, that's a matter for them, you have to ask them. And, yeah. you know, you're in a position where you can't. Um, just in terms of, you know, the, the social values of the country and the, and the changes that we've seen, um, I mean, do you feel in any way less safe now? Personally? Yeah. No. No, I mean, um, I know there are people who do feel less safe, and I interview lots of them, but personally, no, I mean... I think Britain's, you know, for 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 all we say, uh, you know, I think Britain is still um, a melting pot, is still a multicultural place where people love each other's different mm. backgrounds and traditions and colours and religions and, and all that kind of stuff. And yes, there are sort of alarming trends that you'll see and... You know what I said about racism. I mean, I I don't necessarily think racism is on the up. I think I think we're just going through a a period where it seems more acceptable for yeah. people who hold certain views to say them, whereas before they used to bite their tongue. So um, I don't, you know, I don't sense personally any any great threat. But I mean, I know politicians feel that there is, and they're they're much more at the sharp end of things. 
One of the other uh, specials you did was How to Save £100 Billion Live. <laughs> um, I mean, what's fascinating about that is that is basically a kind of Whitehall policy discussion. Yeah. But put on telly, which is such a good idea. I mean, in terms of, was the reaction to that positive? And do you think we should have more programmes like that? That yeah. encourage people to think about policy as an audience? I do think, you know, a lot of the media sort of infantilises the public. Um, and doesn't engage them with the really complicated stuff because they think, oh, that's too complicated and nobody's interested. You know, that that programme, I think, got over a million viewers. Amazing. It was on at 8 o'clock at night in prime time. Um, and, you know, we did it in a way that was deliberately trying to engage people. It was quite a glitzy programme. Um, and we had, you know, lots of graphics and films and we were trying to be very engaging about it. But I, I think you can be creative about these complicated things. And... You know, in a way, that's the trouble with Brexit. Brexit's become so detailed and um, difficult to follow, I think, for most people. And and the conversation has got to such a level that if you if you tuned out two months ago, you haven't got any hope <laughs> of catching up. You know, you've no idea what's going on yeah. or who these people are or what a Northern Ireland-only backstop is and how it's different to, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um and and actually, because it's because it's it's our sort of daily bread and butter, a lot of the media just isn't making much of an effort to explain this stuff. Yes, I used to work on Newsround. Of kids, course, you know, the, yeah, I remember the, it. The kids' news program. So I have I have very much uh, you know ingrained in me a sort of a explain the news, make sure people understand it. Yes. Um, you know, feeling through everything that I do. So I try not to assume too much knowledge. I try to explain as I go along. And I think that's really important. But what that what that show was a kind of attempt at, I suppose, was a way of um, doing news in a different way and encouraging people to think about politics in a different way. So even though we know, voters know that if you... If you're going to tax something, the money has to come from somewhere. People know that you can't just magic this money out of nowhere. They're more susceptible to believe it from certain politicians at certain times. But on the whole, people know, well, if you're promising me this, I know you're going to have to tax it or you're going to have to cut something else. So to just encourage the public more often to think about what the reality of politics is. I mean, do you think broadcasters think about that enough that that, that is it conversations you have at channel four about actually periodically we should do a piece that just encourages people to think about pol- politics in a way that perhaps a politician might think about it yeah i mean i think we absolutely should I mean, but i think the trouble is we live in a world in which broadcasters are obsessed with ratings and yeah. commercial success and even broadcasters who don't need to have ratings for commercial success like the BBC <laughs> are obsessed with ratings mm. um, and, and and what that means is that they're obsessed with what people want rather than what you think you should do and um, and so I, 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 yeah I, I, you know the, the dumbing down trajectory um, has in many ways continued and that may seem at odds with sort of the growth of political programming you know there's loads of political chat on telly now um but it, it's all so inside you know it's all so it's all and it's all sort of about rows let's have a row let's have a heated debate it's mrs totally merton agree. on telly and, <laughs> but it's for real yeah and um so I, i'm not i don't know you know i think it's a good thing you know personally i watch it i enjoy it i can see the nuances in each conversation and what's changed but the number of people who can is relatively small and so I don't know how much of a service it all is. Also, I mean, I'm a, I'm a, a, an absolute politics obsessive, but so much political broadcasting now I find just because of the row element and just because uh, 
I, I, it's almost like a sugar rush. There's a kind of there's a quick hit that you get from watching it, but it, it's not nutritional in any way. You don't come away any more enlightened, no, or knowing what the hell is going on. No, I mean I did an interview on last night's program actually with a Yale professor called Tim Snyder, who's written. He's he's actually a specialist in 20th century European fascism, but he's written some sort of very easy to read books over the last couple of years about the lessons, you know, and obviously he's written them with Trump in mind, but, you know, we were interviewing him with Britain in mind. And just to have those little moments of sort of calm, reflective, let's have a think about this, um, is really, really refreshing and unfortunately quite rare. And, you know, the way I think politics and policy and the way, you know, the way the world works is treated by television these days is you know, is unfortunately, you know, governed by this sort of, but will people watch it? You know, will it get an audience? Um, and I, I've always, you know, been of the opinion that if you tell great stories and if you talk about what matters to people and if you relate what's happening in the world to people's lives, people will watch it. And it's really interesting, I think, when you have big stories like the Arab Spring. So when the, when, when, yes. when the Arab Spring kicked off... Um, and we were obsessing about it, our audiences in the first couple of days were not amazing. There was a little bit of sort of, why, is, why, why are they going on about Egypt and Tunisia and yeah. these countries that we don't really know very much about? But we carried on and, that, and sort of, I think a week on, suddenly people got it and they go, wow, this is actually, this is a big thing that's going on here. Um, and, and so actually the audiences suddenly went up. Wow. And, and people tuned in and kind of got it. So you need to, you know, you do need to persevere with things. And I, I do think in general, you know, people are not, this is across TV, all sorts of different types of TV. You know, I mean, um, the, the risk-taking is kind of gone and sort of commitment is less yes. to things. You know, you, you sort of, you don't give people a lot of time to tune into things or decide whether they've liked it. But Channel 4 News has always been distinct from the others in the sense that it feels more in-depth. Channel 4 News is the place you go to if you want to know more, really, I always thought. Well, it is because we've got more time yeah. than your average news programme and our our reports are longer and we do interviews. So, so yeah, I mean, and our whole outlook is to be an analytical news programme. Um, so, yeah, we're trying to give people a little bit more. And also, I think, you know, the advantage of the internet and our online team and all the su- supplementary information you can give people yeah. now means that you can get a much more in-depth knowledge of things. Has there ever been a discussion about Channel 4 News going 24? Um, not really. I mean, there have been discussions about doing breakfast programmes and we we used to do a lunchtime programme uh, and also late night programmes. Yeah. But, I mean, no, not becoming a news channel. Um, but we do, you know, we, we do just do extra programming now. I mean, when things happen, we, we will sometimes just do a program for YouTube and say, or yes. we'll, we'll continue Channel 4 News after eight o'clock. Sometimes if, if Parliament's been going through a big yeah. crisis night, we have stayed on air on, on the internet for another hour or, or even longer at times. Um, so yeah, I mean, we, we're sort of responding in that way. But I think we can, I think the way people consume news is different. Now, people don't just turn on news channels in the same way that they did maybe 20 years ago. Um, and it's, it's all about the mobile phone now. So mm. we can service that without necessarily being on air. You know, we can pump out new information, new yes. news lines, bits of interviews. We don't need to sort of hold it until seven o'clock. We can just get it out, get it out on air as soon as we've done it. And, and, and that's how, 
you know, we've, we've operated now for a few years. So I don't think you need a news channel. You know, you're, the social media and the way we operate within social media makes you effectively a 24-hour news operation. In terms of your day, what time do you have to be at Channel 4? We have our first meeting at half past nine, um, and then we have another meeting at 2.15. And so if you're, you know, if you're in the office, if you're in the studio, then that, those are the sort of the two anchors in the day. Um, we kind of decide the final sort of running order. We, we have a headline sort of chat at about five o'clock where we go, right, are we leading on this? Yeah. Um, and, and sort of decide what's our sort of our order. Um, and then you probably start writing sometime after that in terms of the headlines. But it can change. I mean, the very first program I did was completely made up <laughs> because um, it was the night, the first night I presented rather, was it, it was the night Bill Clinton bombed Sudan and Afghanistan. Wow. And I think at 10 to 7, we'd built a program, but at 10 to 7, we got a warning from the White House that the president was about to make a statement, didn't know what it was about. And at about two minutes to seven, our producer in Washington got in, an inkling that it was some sort of military action. And then they announced it at seven o'clock. Um, as we were going on air. So uh, we just kind of made it up as we went along, you know, ad-libbed the whole programme. So things do change. You know. <laughs> Is there, I mean, in a weird way, there must be a kind of thrill to react to yeah, yeah. big breaking news. Like that. That's kind of what yeah. you're in the game for. No, it's great. It's, it's, it's hugely uh, exhilarating when that happens. And, you know, and, and the last few months of parliamentary activity have been thrilling in a way but also <laughs> yeah of, you know quite weird and quite difficult to th think through i mean you know sort of i joke about our morning meeting you know sort of the nine thirty meeting used to always be you know having big conversations about where we think the story's going and what we need to do about it and what isn't being covered elsewhere and how can we add to it and where should we be going and it's kind of been reduced now to Something's going to happen later. Yeah, if we don't know we'll, what. We'll definitely cover it, and then we'll ask some people some stuff about yeah. it, you know, um, as it happens. So, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's exciting, but um, also slightly disorientating. We're all knackered. Everybody is absolutely <laughs> knackered. I mean, is, is there a kind of... You know, I spent years, and still do, I watch the Parliament Channel just... If I'm, on, if I'm in during the day, I'll just have it on. And I've just always loved watching it because there's a variety of debates. You learn about all sorts of You were an stuff. early adopter then. Oh, absolutely. Yes. I'm, I'm obsessed with it. I just love having it. I actually find it quite... It's almost a bit like classic FM. There's something about the way people are talking there on the whole, not the big controversial debates, but it's quite a calm chamber. And now all of a sudden people are going, oh my God, I'm watching Parliament Channel Live because of what's happened with Burke or whatever. And I kind of... I'm getting a thriller, even though... What is happening with the country causes me great emotional and intellectual distress. There is a kind of, in a way, I'm kind of pleased that people are tuning in now. Yes. No, I mean, it, if people are engaging with it and watching, then that, that can only be a good thing. Um, and yeah, Parliament Channel getting a million viewers is bonkers. <laughs> it's amazing. Oh, man. So there's a, there's a thrill there. I mean, in terms of what happens next, not, not really for the country, but for you, I mean, do you... Do you have a career plan? Do you think, oh, well, I'll, I'll do a few more years at Channel 4? Is there anything left you would like to achieve? You can't... I mean, there's loads I'd like to achieve, but, I mean, you can't really plan um, a media career because, it's, you know, it, what on earth is the media going to look like in five years' time? I have no idea. I mean, strangely, I've been at Channel 4 News an awful long time. Yes. 20, 21 years now. So um, it has changed quite a lot while I've been there, and what I do there has also changed. So we've gone from... Being, you know, one programme five days a week when I first joined, going seven days a week to going two days, two programmes a day and then three programmes a day and then back down to one, um, to the internet, to having a podcast, all those sorts of things. So 
lots has changed, but uh, but in terms of what else out out there, there's loads of things I'd like to do. I mean, you know, um, in terms of um, you know interview programs and documentaries and uh, you know covering big events like general elections and all that kind of stuff. That that's you know that's all the stuff that kind of turns you on. And I, I'm very lucky in that I do now have quite a mix of stuff. I also do a documentary series called Unreported World, yes. which is a foreign affairs programme. I've just come back from Mali filming a, a film out there at the moment. Um, so you do go to these weird and amazing places as well. So, you know, it's quite hard for me to say. I, I don't look at a job and go, that's the, jo- that's the next job I want. Um, but do you ever look at, say, America, you mentioned Fox News earlier, uh, um, where so much of the news is conflated with opinion, and think... To CNN for a few years, or Fox, or, or a station that suited your own values, and think I could then get a bit of my own opinion in here. I think, I mean, there are times when you when you think that might be fun, but if you did that, then obviously you could never come back, <laughs> and you would blow yeah. your you would blow your credibility here. So, um, no, I think we've got to resist. I think at the moment there is this sort of constant push towards oh, let's just give up on the way Britain does the media. Let's just become like America Um, and I think we've got to resist that at the moment and we've got to hold on to our values and our our sense of trust and I think in a time of chaos um, it's it's much more important to have these anchor points that you can trust Mm. and so it's very very important for us to try and be that and to resist all temptation to let anything slip or to change what you're doing so no I don't I don't really ever think oh I'd like to go off and do that I, I mean I I went to America to sort of see how they did that. And I also made a, I actually made a, a documentary about talk radio and spent some time in American talk radio for the same reason. I, I found it absolutely horrific. I and mean, I kind of thought, you know, I was sitting in a studio in Florida with this woman who had a gun, who was wearing a gun, oh God. you know, going on about, um, you know, the, the right to bear arms and all this kind of stuff. And I just thought, God, this is really insane. And, I, you know, it's not... It's it's not journalism. It's not. I don't know what it is. It's sort of. It's it's just. It's like a rally, but on the airwaves. It's a kind of form of trolling. Where I used to do the overnight shift on Talk Sport for years, and that was you know long before Brexit. And you could see all these things in the air. And, and late night radio was a precursor already to social media, in the sense that it was a platform for people to say some deeply unacceptable things, and for you to challenge it. But also, you realise that there's so many people out there. The whole society is so fragmented and there are so many... You know, you think you know where the British public opinion is. I knocked on doors for years for the Labour Party and got a sense when you speak to people face-to-face. But there is, a, there, is a, there is an undercurrent that you don't see even there that late-night radio gives you, that, that social media definitely gives you now. And looking back on that time, you think, this stuff has all been inevitable, really. I mean, people have taken decisions that have allowed that to happen that they could chose yeah. not to take. But that that undercurrent has always been there in Britain. There has always been a kind of quite, there's still a minority, but a conspiratorial kind of, a a huge thirst for conspiracy theories. Yeah. And I think, um, I don't want to pick a fight with him, but I mean, I I think the the, the question, or the, the sort of the interesting departure that's happened on mainstream TV is Piers Morgan and what he's doing with GMB which is a departure. It's a new mm-hmm. type of thing. And, you know, Piers is a really skillful broadcaster. He's an intelligent man. Um, but he's doing something there that is, is, is 
different, is very political, is very opinionated, is really challenging, I think, for the regulatory environment we work in. Um, you know, they sort of they 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 sort of get away with it, if you like, by saying we also feature other views, and that's how it's impartial. Um, but I think that's you know that that's the one that's sort of pushing the the sort of the boundaries of of what we do and is innovating, and we'll have to see where it leads. But um, you know, the the logical extension of that is to say, forget about regulation. Let's just go like America. Everybody you know, is honest about what they think. And, you know, the, the viewer, I mean, the, you know, the argument in America is, you know, there's no such thing as impartiality. You've all got opinions. It's just that you pretend not to hold them. And we are more honest than you. And I can see that argument taking hold here as well, that we need to be much more honest about and transparent about what we are doing. And it being couched in those terms. But I think that's quite a dangerous road to go down as well. Well, it's because in a way it's the same values that uh, that apply to the civil service is that people will have their own uh, opinions, but there's a sense of duty in the sense that things have to be done in a particular way that is uh, seen to be impartial. I think what's changed is that, and this is quite a challenge, is that we used to operate in an environment in which the person sitting on the other side of the desk also recognised that there were certain rules to the game. Yeah. that their their duty was to try to tell the truth that they were about doing the right thing you know and and not trying to deceive you we're now entering a world in which some of the people sitting across the desk from you are deliberately trying to deceive you um and how we respond to that is quite a challenge i think and has that been just an incremental change like coastal erosion, is that just sort of a, a, a small amount each year? Or have there been big moments, do you think? Obviously, we think of Brexit. But there, have there been other things that have led to that? I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, to some extent, policy, it's always been the case that politicians have always wanted you to focus on one truth and not another. <laughs> and, you know, that's what spin was. Yeah. Um, but I think spin has given way now to in some cases, sort of just outright lying and, you know, um, trying not to tell the truth and trying to get stuff past you. And and so I, I, I don't, you know, I, I don't know if there have been particular events. I just, I think we've that's where we've ended up. I mean, I think it's just a product of sort of very, very polarised times, people being more desperate to win and you know, not just Brexit, but, you know, the left-right struggles um, and Trump and Britain's place in the world and all these sorts of things, you know, if people are prepared to do a little bit more than they perhaps were in the past in order to get their way and to win. And do you have any hope that things will get better or are we on a downward trajectory now? I think, I mean, I am, I I do have a basic belief in human decency (laughs) and, and, you know... um, and that people are people want good things and want progress, and so yes, I think. And there, there are lots of good people out there, lots of good people in politics, um, lots of good people who are really trying to make the world a better place on both sides of the political divide. Um, so yeah, but I, I do fear that uh, at the moment, you know, there's there's a perfectly good chance that things are going to get more divided, more bitter, you know. Possibly more violent. I think you know that that's that's a possibility um, before they get better. But but yeah, I mean, I'm not. 
uh, I'm not ultimately pessimistic. I mean, I th- I, you know, I, th- I think politics is cyclical, yeah. and people, you know, they, people try one thing and then they they go, well, we've tried that for quite a while. That hasn't quite worked out how we thought, and let's try something else. And so we have to see how far we're going to go down this particular road, and what happens. I mean, you know, it kind of depends. So many depends, you know, so many variables, doesn't it? Depends on what happens to the next election and yes. what happens to each of, you know, the Labour Party and the Conservative Party after that. Well, I think that's a hopeful note to end on. Uh, Christian, thank you so much for coming in. It's been just completely absorbing. (laughs) Um, So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening. That was an absolute treat uh, to record and to get... I mean, obviously, with, with Christian's been around... and He's still young, but been around so long, been such a fixture. There are so many things in terms of... Uh, sort of non-politics news, although, it, you know, in a way, all news is political, but um, that I really wanted to talk about, 9-11 and things like that, the other big stories that he's covered. Um, but I think it was right to just stick on politics as much as possible, given the uh, given the title of the podcast. But it was brilliant. Um, don't forget, you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. I've had so many emails about the Darren Grimes episode, as you would imagine. Uh, lots of people um, who disagree with Darren getting in touch to, to say just how much... They enjoyed listening to someone they disagreed with. Um, so do do email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Philip Rowe got in touch to say he listens in Miami. Can you beat that? I think sometimes, actually, I mean, the, although it is amazing to hear that people listen in the mountains of Japan and in Miami and in New York, uh, there is something um, cool about listening on a bus in... Uh, Leicester or Derby or, or in honour of today's guest Blackburn um, so do let us know where you listen and any feedback and any suggestions a, a lot of people have got in touch to say about local government or members of the European Parliament and I absolutely agree and as somebody who works in local government um, I am very keen so that is something I will redouble my efforts on Joe Swinson is the next live guest we've got some great weekly guests lined up uh, in the next few weeks so as always thank you very much for listening do leave an iTunes review uh, I know I always say this but it makes such a difference in terms of helping other people find it Uh, and do just tell your friends your family anyone you know strangers uh, about uh, the podcast tell everyone you can Um, but uh, thank you very much for listening it's always a pleasure and uh, I'll see you next week cheers Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.